Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good afternoon and greetings from the hill country of Central Texas. This is Revolution of Military Affairs, a podcast about war and warfare. In today's episode, we're diving deep into the fascinating world of international conflict and security. Joining us today is an expert who brings a wealth of knowledge to our discussion. Our guest today is Dr. Kerry Chavez, a professor in the Department of Political Science at Texas Tech University. Dr. Chavez's work explores the intersection of politics and strategies with emerging technologies and international conflict and security. Dr. Chavez is widely published in a host of academic journals, edited volumes, and influential policy venues. Dr. Chavez has also collaborated with prestigious entities such as the United Nations Security Council, NATO's Vulnerabilities in the Drone Age Working Group, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and WeThink's Globally Collaborative War Game Working Group. As an undergrad, Dr. Chavez also interned at the Pentagon, specifically in international security and Middle East policy. The experience included significant involvement in the U.S.-Israeli short-range rocket defense working group, a project that played a crucial role in the development of the Iron Dome. Kerry, you recently published a paper in CSP on drones and the Russo-Ukrainian War. Uh, from that from that research that you did, what do you think are some of the highlights uh, from that paper and from the conflict that you'd like to share? Good question. Um, so that, that whole piece was part of a special forum. They had called for papers asking, you know, a year into the war when, when the call went out, um, what did we get wrong and why? Um, as, as scholars, as academics. And so I examined the, the drones in the conflict and something that we just flat got wrong is we didn't anticipate the degree to which commercial drones would penetrate modern interstate total war between two strong states. 
And so um, the piece looks at how there's been these two literatures kind of running concurrently parallel to one another. There's the literature on state drones that looks at exquisite advanced platforms and you know Russia and Ukraine field them. And then there's this completely separate literature on violent non-state actors leveraging commercial technologies because that's all that they can afford, that's all they can access. Um, and, and some, we, we've looked some from that bottom one at the potential for some groups to get military grade drones, especially state sponsored groups, but no one has been looking at states getting commercial drones and what that would mean for modern warfare. And so seeing the way that first Ukrainians kind of emulated violent non-state actors, that's, that was the framing we had in the paper is that they, Ukraine was the underdog in that conflict. They were fighting against a much stronger adversary. And in the same way that terrorist organizations and other violent non-state actors are fighting against a stronger adversary, they leverage cheap, affordable solutions, technological solutions to bridge that parity gap. And so we saw Ukraine do the same thing. And they've been doing this to a, a much more constrained degree since about 2014 in the Donbass. And, and so they already had a precedent and then they just did it at scale in the whole war. And so uh, we saw that and then we saw Russia emulate the other underdog in the picture, Ukraine, when they saw how effectively these small tactical drones were being used against them on the front lines. So it was something that I think military grade scholars didn't see coming. And it was only by kind of blending the logic of the violent non-state actor and the, the drone literature that we were able to, to really theoretically parse it. And we anticipate from here, after seeing the drone diversity in modern warfare, um, we think that it's probably going to spread. We think more states are going to enfold the small, potentially commercial UAS in their arsenals. We already have a precedent with Israel. Um, they are... This is, of course, before the current war started, but they were fielding um, some pilot probes. They have, they're calling, calling them drone bands, and it's essentially like pocket reconnaissance for each platoon so that they can have that situational awareness on the ground. They can have that aerial vantage point simulating high grounds in the real time kind of context specific time sensitive intelligence. So um, I actually have a piece under review that's calling on US Army leadership to start enfolding tactical drones, because I, do, I think we can't miss this. A lot of the, the people on um, the Russian side have said we overslept the UAV revolution and it was a huge mistake. And so I don't want to see us do the same thing. What do you think? Um, so in, in a lot of U.S. Uh, military units, they have they have drones, they have, you know, Ravens. And I don't remember yeah. everything that they have right now, but there's Ravens um, at, the, at the like yeah. platoon level. Is that the type of drone that we're looking at, or is that insufficient for the need? Like you can't, I don't think you can go around and strap on a grenade to a Raven and do what Ukraine has been able to do in, in that war. So is that something, is that type of drone incompatible with what it is you saw happen there in Russia and Ukraine? I think it's one potential solution. Um, I think the important thing is that we do it at a, a broader scale and we really assimilate it. We really integrate it into units and i think what that looks like is that we have an individual in those units who specializes in drone use drone piloting and there's a lot of challenges to doing that especially in in kind of the fast clip of modern warfare and theater so i do think that's a start it does give them that like i said that pocket reconnaissance on demand 
but I think they probably need more flexible and ruggedized platforms than they have now that can perform multi-use functions, um, potentially to drop a bomblet or, um, yeah, I think, I think it just needs to grow. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. When you, when you're talking about it, you can take it a couple different ways, perhaps you can take it in the, uh, just purely in the reconnaissance surveillance standpoint, or you can take it in the armed, right. armed drone standpoint, or you can take it as both. And I think that that's something right. I like, I, when you, when you start talking about, like when you started talking about uh, the drones there in, in Russia, Ukraine, and my mind immediately went to the armed reconnaissance. So that's, it's the, uh, I think the balancing of that, because the, again, there are those small ravens. I don't know how familiar you, you are with the raven, but uh, this guy here, not a big fan. <laughs> They're very small. But yeah, based off practical experience, back in the early days of Iraq, we it was always the, uh, get the raven up, you know, and so you give out and you throw the raven mm -hmm. in a lawn dart or it would just, you know, disappear into a field. You'd never see it again. So I assume things have gotten better since then. But uh, your point your point on that is is well taken. Based off that, what are some common misconceptions that you see people making regarding drones, the use of drones in armed conflict today? Misconceptions. Um, I think one, one is the definition of swarming. So people talk about swarming drones all the time. That kind of gets into artificial intelligence and, and emergent intelligence, you know, like generative AI. So most of what we see, I think in almost entirely what we see now is what I would call a false swarm. It's just when a bunch of people send up drones and they fly together in tandem in a cluster. And there's actually no swarming technology in that at all. It's just like kind of massing with a platform. And people, the hype, the scare around this idea of swarming killer robots, right, is, I think, very overblown, especially the public that can't really scale the threats because they don't understand how it works. So I think it's an irresponsible treatment of that. Um, a pseudo swarm would be something where a person, I don't know what kind of person this would be, but that they've attained the ability to operate multiple drones at a time in a coordinated fashion. Um, I'm really fascinated to see if that ever happens. And then, of course, a, an actual swarm is where they have emergent intelligence and the drones themselves cooperate in the sky. We haven't seen that, I don't think, at least not in combat. I think there are certainly some, some research and development projects afoot that are exploring that. But I think that's one of them. Another one I see a lot in my research and policy circles is kind of a, a, a penchant for technological determinism. Um, so yeah, drones are an attractive platform for, for a lot of reasons, but it's not the case that everybody recognizes those for what they are and everybody will use them in the same way. Um, so I have a, a data set that really is due for an update, but it was collected through the end of 2019. And in that data set, we found of like overall for the time scope, only 6% of violent non-state actors had adopted drones by that point. And if we only counted the ones who were active um, in the end of 2019, it was 9%, so slightly larger, but still it wasn't what everybody expected. Everybody's been thinking that this is gonna just massively proliferate and, um, and it is increasing in commonness, but I, I don't think we can look at it as a definite path dependent thing because it's humans who are making choices given their incentives, their constraints, their opportunities, their you know agendas, some of them find commercial UAS a useful tool in their toolkit, but some of them don't. And 
some of them don't find it relatively valuable to other things. You know, there's other more reliable platforms that they may have more experience with. So we really have to look at the human component because this is a socio-technical phenomenon. And I think we miss the socio a lot in that. So I think that's probably another one. So I'm going to go back real quick on, on the point you made about swarming and AI. Uh, you talk about it being a human aspect there that is, is vitally important to this. Uh, the swarming thing, I, I find a challenging idea based off, if it is truly going to be based off this this idea that AI is going to just allow these things to go, you know, go out and do whatever it is they want to do. A, um, yeah. generally speaking, we, we adhere to the, the you know, to LOAC uh, and the international uh, humanitarian law, right? And so if you're just letting these machines go, I assume, you know, like you're going to build in code within that system to say certain, you know, parameters as it relates to IHL. But at the same time, like if it does have emergent learning capability, it may say, you know what, like my purpose is to go kill things and blow stuff up. And so I'm just going to like delete yeah. that line of code. And so I know that's getting down the like killer robots uh, realm, but I think that that's something that when we think about swarms and trust and AI and, and war still being a human endeavor. I hate that trope at this point because it's so played out that, you know, everybody lifts the yeah. Clausewitz thing there. But at the end of the day, it is. I mean, like we we um, have IHL that's not going to go away. Um, and so how does that, how do you think that fits uh, within, within the idea of swarming? <laughs> actually, two things um, from what you just said. Um, one of them is actually, I think, another common misconception, and it's that these things, like these enablers or these convergences of tech, like AI and uh, machine learning and, and some of the, like, the advanced materials and the power sources, the, there's an assumption that those things are easy, but they're not. <laughs> they're, look at Russia. Like They had all of this rhetoric coming out before the war that they were really advanced in AI, that they, were, they had you know, the, the autonomous drones. And then, of course, when the rubber hit the road, they don't have anything. So, like, yeah. I think it's harder than than what people think. Um, but then going back to this idea of the laws of armed conflict and humanitarian law, I think for the most part that does work when it comes to states. But the bigger fear is how violent non-state actors who can access that might behave because they aren't beholden or, or they don't follow the same norms. We've seen that in between Hamas and Israel just recently, you know, but they don't, they aren't constrained in the same way. So they, I, I don't anticipate that they would restrain themselves from certain uses if that ever became a reality. I don't think it's in the near future, but if we're going to just like future cast for a, you know, a long yeah. time, Sure, maybe. Well, that, so last thing before I move on to the next, my next uh, question for you here, as we're talking, but uh, that, that just popped something into my mind. So um, if things like Wagner Group or Wagner Group-like entities become more prevalent in the future, they yeah. theoretically could be folks that get a hold of these, the swarming technology, you know, further down the road, it's got to develop more, or even how they could be the people that invest in this technology. And then that's part of their selling point to a state actor is, hey, look, you know, we're this we're this group. We operate outside the rules because we're not a state, um, and we've got this technology, these drone swarms, and it gives you a bit of deniability as it relates to uh, to to their use on the battlefield. And so, I think that, you know, as, as you were talking about Hamas and other uh, 
uh, violent non-state actors and whatnot. That that was something that jumped in my head there. Uh, you don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to comment on that if you want. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Anytime we have um, a kind of a a rogue actor in the space, and it's not just the uh, private military yeah. uh, corporations that we have to consider. I think they most of them. I mean, Wagner Group is kind of its own actor in that space, but most of them are. Um, more norm abiding because they have profit incentives, they have commercial incentives. And so if they act like assholes, then they won't get jobs in the future. <laughs> but I do agree, there are some bad actors out there. And then there's also proxies. There are the state sponsored proxies that can access the, the latest and greatest cutting edge technology. And they can use it without the same kind of impunity and the states can launder it. So I think both of them are concerning. They're, they're the most concerning when it comes to those kinds of threats. The point on the proxy too, last, last thing, I'm gonna move to the next one. <laughs> but the point you said about proxies, I think is really interesting and potentially uh, an area that needs to be looked at in the future of uh, the evolution of, of, of swarming drones and AI, because you could use that proxy to then field test it but you know, you're out there washing your hands saying, oh, it's not me, it's this, this random actor out here doing this, you know? But really, you're the one that's Absolutely. giving them the technology and you're the one that's like taking all the information back and building a better, you know, building a better mousetrap. Yeah. So, all right, uh, let's see. So this is tied similarly to the point on swarming, but this is one of the questions I always have when folks talk about this. Is drone technology something that can scale to make it more than just a, a point impact, to make more than just a point impact in armed conflict because a lot of the discussions that go on as it relates to drones in my in my assessment are very finite tactical focused on a point even a swarm like if you're talking about a large force in the field like a swarm to attack that thing in any kind of uh way that would do anything other than just be somewhat of a small distraction would require significant amounts of uh of swarm of drones within that swarm and so that's something that you've seen as you've done this research so I, I would say first about the scalability of drones talking about their scalability and then we'll talk about their impact um with the the advent really of st strong states using small tactical uas i think we now have such a drone diversity but then we had before it used to be that they were just a strategic platform that kind of had a lot of, of redundancy compared to other air power it had its certainly its pros you know its ability to loiter um it's it's risk aversion probably less prone to escalation in the event of a downing stuff like that but it also had significant detractors because it didn't they were slow um you know no surface to air air to air defenses so I think most militaries kind of viewed the the military grade, like the medium and high altitude drones, just a tactical adjunct in their air power arsenals. But now that we do have the whole scale, I think we have um, a different different expression of power, just a, a different array. Again, the scalability because we do now have tactical all the way up to the strategic objectives. And I think the the real power in drones standalone, I don't think that they are going to make any anything larger than, like you say, a point impact. But I think they're enabling actors, including weaker actors, to field combined arms power in ways that we haven't seen before. And I think Hamas is actually an ideal example of that. The complexity of the, they had like simultaneous multi-domain coordinated attacks coming into Israel. And I think a lot of experts have been surprised at the complexity of, of their invasion. 
and to some degree, of course, it is they're the state sponsorship that they benefit from. They do get doctrine training and resources from beyond their their real repertoire. They do also have their allies, but I think some of it is causal because of their their harnessing of drones that it has enabled them to do combined arms in a way they never could before. So I think in terms of its integration and the ability to have these different units with different skill sets and applications kind of have a synergistic greater effect, I do think drones will enable something beyond point impact, just not standalone. Yeah, no, that's that's actually uh, a really interesting, uh, I've heard a lot of different opinions and assessments and, uh, you know, just thoughts on that, but the combined arms and how, because I think that that, I don't want to say this was like a gotcha question for you, because it wasn't, but <laughs> I personally think <laughs> drones are very, like, point specific and i'm like uh oh, you got a drone big deal you know um like that harasses <laughs> like a small element of something but your point on it uh yeah. on how they they enable people that wouldn't otherwise have combined arms capability to have some some mm -hmm. form of combined arms capability i think it does uh that, that is a good counterpoint to it being just the point impact let me say one more thing just because you made me think of it just now especially weaker actors, because I, I study a lot of the violent non-state actors, and they are inherently weaker than most states. And the things that they need and struggle to get, they, manpower, materiel, right, um, just resources in general, and information. Drones, a single drone enables them to have all of them in one flexible platform. So I think that they, they have an asymmetric like marginally stronger impact for our weaker actors than for the stronger actors. So for them being able to get that intelligence and also use more risk averse tactics, I think for them it's a greater force multiplier than it is for our strong states, which is concerning for modern warfare because increasingly more violent non-state actors are in those spaces. So yeah, that's I think that's just another Last question, because uh, your question, your answer to my question got me thinking about another question. The uh, so, okay. and a lot of the bigger drones that are that are able to be used today uh, by states, and I don't know, I don't, I don't have a, a huge uh, depth of knowledge beyond like what state militaries. I wouldn't even say I have a huge depth of knowledge on that, but anyway, a lot of those can and are used for uh, network retransmission sites so they're like flying um like cell towers uh, to use something comparable that mm -hmm. may translate easier to civilian world is that something that you think perhaps on these smaller drones as we talk about in uh non-state actors violent non-state actors as they get these drones and start using them is that something that these types of drones uh, are able to do because as we talk about combined arms and the ability to communicate and see and understand what's going on, like if that's the case, that would be a fairly significant turn of events, I think, for for practitioners, but then also for people um, on the yeah. outside that, uh, that 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 study the conflict. So are you talking about like sustained loitering intelligence? And a lot of the bigger drones today, you can plug like a radio yeah. into it. And it's it serves as a like a network hub, essentially, right? So it's like the internet in the sky, and so it adds redundancy yeah. to a a communication gotcha. and information network. And so is that something that a non-state actors are currently able to do with the drones? Because I think if that's the case, that's that's actually fairly concerning. 
or is that something that's a potential as, as we move forward? I'm going to say no. Um, <laughs> no, I'm going to say no. I, I haven't seen any precedence of, of them using them yeah. that way. And in fact, I think one of the biggest weaknesses of the tactical drones is their data link security. Um, so like in the, in the Russia-Ukraine war, the DJIs, especially the Mavic, were almost the only thing we were seeing in the battlefield for a while. But then they figured out how to identify those signals, not just once they were up, but like even when they were turned on. And so it became extremely dangerous for them to be flying those. You had operators who were having to, to field them in really short forays and also remain mobile because they were being hunted as soon as a signal was detected in that, that space. And anymore, they're trying to, to develop indigenous models. They have these really idiosyncratic fixes because of the data link insecurity. And so I think it's actually the opposite that those commercial platforms, they're, um, I think they're more fragile when it comes to that data link and connectivity security. They also just don't have the altitude or currently the altitude or the loitering ability to perform that kind of role. And I think most of what they're used, they're just used in the tactical canopy. They're used um, for the immediate vicinity. Of course, if, if certain technologies, you know, advanced perhaps, but I don't, I wouldn't foresee that right now from what I am seeing okay, on the ground, sure. in the air, on the ground. <laughs> Going back to uh, swarms, if we didn't answer this already, what does your research suggest about the future of drone swarms? Uh, and their utility in armed conflict. Is it really something that's going to be achievable? And if so, based off A, so I guess there's a couple parts. Is it achievable, general question? B, if so, when do you think it will be? C, um, if it is and will be, what are the key things that have to be unlocked for that to happen? And then I guess, what are we on? Okay, let's do A. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> We're going to have to remind me anyway. So, okay, is it achievable? Um, so, again, going back to the definitions, it, it is certainly achievable, the, the false swarms to some degree, the pseudo swarms. We've seen that, you know, Islamic State was doing that back in 2017. They had groups that were flying. I think there's like the famous quote uh, that there was literally a period where 24 hours there was like 80 drones in the air against US forces. And so, of course, we've seen them do this kind of act, um, activity with the false swarms. I think too, we've seen it some with Hamas, um, they used a small false swarm to attack some naval vessels and some energy infrastructure. And so we are seeing attempts to, to simulate it. And I think what it does is it simulates mass, yeah. especially when you don't have actual mass, it simulates it and that, that can be helpful in the same way that the the thousands of rockets shot at Iron Dome overwhelmed it and it didn't work. That's an over-reliance on you know, technology and defense. So I think it can make a difference there. In terms of the, the actual real emergent intelligence firms, um, I don't know. I mean, does anybody know? Does anyone out there know? <laughs> I know that there's, there's projects. I know DARPA has a project. I know um, people who, know things about Russia. I am not in like the internal circle of Russian intelligence, but I think they have projects exploring it. And I, I just, I don't know. I'm sure eventually they'll figure it out, but I, I both, I look at artificial intelligence right now and I, sometimes I'm scared and sometimes I'm like, this is so much less than I expected. So I think that's a moving target that 
I, I really can't answer. Yeah. So I, mean, that, I guess that, that'll easy. wrap up the final. I'll put the last, whatever it was, three sub questions. <laughs> and and okay. the rest of them. Yeah, because <laughs> I forgot what two of them were anyway. So, the, so I guess the question of See? cost. Yeah, I know, I'm sorry. I guess the question of cost, right? So is any of this actually cost, pro, not cost, pro, I guess it is cost prohibitive. So if it is cost prohibitive, because things like AI, that like that, I'm, I don't know how to do it. I'm sure a lot of people do, and I bet they get paid a lot of money to do it because there's probably like you yeah. know ten people. I'm, I'm clearly exaggerating. Ten people in the world that actually know how to like go in and make that stuff do what it does. And so all that stuff is extremely expensive for it to yeah. actually be something that is big picture, large scale, something to worry about, and not yeah. just going back to the, the comment earlier about it being a point impact effect, I, I think that the cost is really going to be what holds back this idea of drone swarms and, and drones beyond, you know, finite little areas of, of engagement being a big deal. Do um, you have any thoughts or any, any appreciation for how much, not how much specifically, but how cost affects? Like you want a dollar amount? Yeah, okay. you can tell me no. how much you pay the Well, but what I would say though, <laughs> I, I agree with you for now, but what I would say is let's schedule a podcast session in yeah. 10 years. Okay. Maybe you can do the same day <laughs> and let's talk about this again, because, um, so I'm going to, I'm going to lean on some of the work of Audrey Cronin, who is a genius. If you can ever get her on your podcast. Um, so she has a piece that explains why this era and the, the way technology is pervading society and warfare the reason why it's looking so different. So um, we're in an era of open innovation. And so like almost the entire 20th century was an era of closed innovation where you had your, your military industrial complex was, they, they had a monopoly and they remained on the forefront of all of the innovation and in the military technologies. And she actually goes back earlier and is like, but this isn't the first era of open innovation. The late 1800s featured a lot of the inventions that became things that we use, platforms that we used in warfare. And so now we're back to that. And open innovation is when you have your private and commercial entities that occupy the same innovative space and oftentimes are on the leading edge of producing some of the technologies and platforms that feed into conflict. And so the porosity between military and civilian has just increased significantly. And consequently, all of the AI that's being developed, and this is the same with commercial drones, that's being developed for, for illicit, benign, or good uses can then be hijacked for illicit or combative uses. And so I wouldn't, I do think that it's expensive right now, but when you have these commercial incentives to produce solutions that can be democratized and you have firms getting into that game in the same way that drones used to cost a lot of money and now you can buy one for $100 on Amazon, I think that there are going to be AI inputs, applications that right now are very expensive, but once it normalizes and democratizes, then it will no longer be. And so that's when we really need to start being concerned. I don't think we're there yet, but I've watched this um, curve, this development curve in a lot of other emerging technologies before. And so as that changes, then we should be having different conversations. All right. So 10 years, we'll come back to that and uh, we'll read. Okay. <laughs> and then we'll, we'll see where we are. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> so, final question to close out the close out today's conversation. Uh, I I so again the podcast is called Revolution of Military Affairs for a reason. I, I like the idea of 
uh, asking tough questions, examining hard ideas, looking at revolutionary things. And so part of that to me, because I, I do a lot of work uh, on military thinking and uh, examining the details of how things work. Uh, so I'm always interested in the things that people say, like, this is the answer, right? So with all that uh, lead in here, what is the worst hot take you see today regarding war and warfare? I'm going to give you two, right, if that's yeah, okay. I'm happy with that. Okay. Um, I think the first one is super general, but it's just the amount of alarmism there is over emerging technologies. I think there's kind of, you either have alarmism or you tend to have people just saying that it's, it doesn't matter. It's, you know, just a, an incremental tactical evolution type thing. But I think it's probably somewhere in the middle, especially with convergences of technologies. And I see so like when I, the, the drone literature first started, there was chapters about like our, our dark drone future and um thinking that within the year we were going to have some terrorist organization like an Anish Enrico moment where they were going to um put they were going to come into medium altitude with an ag drone and disperse toxic chemicals and kill metropolis cities and stuff so and it's not just drones it's also cyber it's also ai it's also quantum computing right it's, it's all these things that are hard to understand and so because of that sheen of uh, a mystery and allure, like it's sci-fi, it's, you know, it's like exciting, but scary. I think it's, it's really prone to doomsday scripts. Look at movies, right? <laughs> it's, it, that's what we see. It, the public is consuming that. And so I think there's a lot of, a lot of people jump on that uh, wagon and publish the the doomsday scripts when it's just not merited it's not responsible the public is already scared they don't need that I think so a lot of that too, that's my first if i could jump in on that real quick i think a lot of that too reflects Please, the yeah. uh, a general absence of uh historic and i'm not a historian but a general absence of historical knowledge as it relates to war and warfare right and to go back to your point on combined arms a lot of this yeah. you know a lot of yeah. this like oh my god look at all these new drones it's cha it's game changing and really, it's like, no, nah, dude, it's it's just added a wrinkle uh, to combined arms and joint right. operations. You right. know what I mean? So like, yeah. oh, it's made it to where you can uh, shoot shoot from a little further away. Like that's that's not a big deal. You know what I mean? Or it's it's yeah. added another yeah. another dimension to massing. You know, you're just massing and yeah. the air domain yeah. versus on the ground, and it causes them to look in this direction instead of that. And I think uh, a a lot of that goes to in all fields to include the military militaries. Uh, Pick your, mm -hmm. pick your state, mm -hmm. uh, there's a, just a general lack of appreciation for, for military history and military theory and the ideas that go into this. And again, so I, I, I'm glad that you said that because I completely agree with you. And if I didn't completely agree with you, I'd still say that was a good point. But uh, <laughs> I completely agree with you because that, I just half the time I shake my head when I hear people talk about, oh, my God, this new thing, it's a game changer. And I'm like, no, dude, no, it's not. It's, uh, it's It may have added a wrinkle. Yeah. and to, to your point on like the bell curve of, of innovation, I think it's one of those, this challenge response dynamic, right? The innovator is always a step yeah. ahead of, yeah, yeah. the innovator is always a step ahead of the, uh, of the, uh, the person on the receiving end, but eventually they catch up. Like there has been like zero instance in the history of warfare where the innovator didn't get caught at some point. And then you're right. in this period right. of you know, tension where you're both basically doing the same thing. And then, you know, like, oh gosh, mm -hmm. we got to figure out a way to get over this. And then, you know, that, that bell curve kicks up again. So anyway, second point. Thank you. That was good. I liked it. Okay. 
Megan, hot take. Um, I think it's the it's like the conflation or uh, maybe the false causality of certain things. Like for example, you've heard it said ISIL is the new Al Qaeda. No, they're not. There are so many differences between these two organizations, right? And so I've seen like just in the, the recent days, I've seen Russia trained Hamas because Hamas dropped a, a drone, you know, a drone dropped a bomb on a tank exactly the same. So therefore, like, no, they didn't. I think the terrorists actually trained the Russia Ukraine. Like that's my whole article that I was talking about, right? Like they learned it from them. ISIL did that a long time before the war. And um, and there's been people saying like Hamas is the new ISIL. No, they're not. Um, if we get into this sense of, you know, this is the next is the next, it's all just this like chain of, of similar problem sets, then we're actually boxing ourselves in and we're, we're choosing not to be um, open eyed, potentially imaginative, practical and pragmatic about healthy responses. And so I think that's something in that I see not just in my field with emerging technologies and, and air power and drones, but in modern warfare in general of like, this is the new yep. that it's it's evolved into this new thing slightly, but it's we need to to have well, that goes back to your first point. We need to have more it's, it's alarmism. And I, and I don't again, I don't know. Some of it, I think, is uh, uh, naivety, right? You know, people are naive and like, oh, my God, this is the first time. And it goes back to, again, not having the historical context of things that have come before and, and also understand the causal mechanisms that are associated with how different groups operate. Uh, but then also at the same time, some of it is like, not to be, not to sound, uh, I don't know, uh, callous, but it's, hey, read my new thing, or hey, watch my new, you know what I mean? And so it's like, you like, like, look, my house is on fire. Now come listen to me talk about how yeah. I can sell you this thing. Put your house out of fire, you know? And so I think... But that's what a hot take oh, is. Yeah. Like it's a, it's a self-aggrandizing, jumping on a hype over something. Yeah. But that's interesting that you say like the Americans actually love new things. And so they're always like, this is the yeah. new terrorism. But it's not the new terrorism. It's just terrorism and globalization, right? When, and some say that's all. This is the new that. So it's interesting how we both, like we get ourselves into this weird contorted thing where we say it's the new that and we overemphasize facets of the last thing, but we also say it's new when it, we could do, we could have lessons learned. What we need to do in all of this is the critical contextualization. Like we need to pull the essence of what it is out and then we need to analyze what's different about it and we need to adapt to that framework. And I don't think we do a good job of that because of the fascination with newness and the path dependency that we tend to have in our approaches. There's a lot of stickiness and like bureaucratic approaches. So we really need to get more agile and critically thinking about how threats are emerging and how we can better respond to them. Hey, and on that, uh, Carrie, I think that that's a great place to stop. Critical, critical contextualization, I think, is like the overriding theme of this conversation. I really like that that point that you made yeah. here at the very yeah. end. So. Uh, with that, thank you very much for your time today. Appreciate it. Is there any anything you'd like to plug since we were just talking about people in hot takes and plugging stuff? <laughs> Is there anything that you're working on that you would like to uh, to push real quick while you have a moment before we close out here? Sure. Um, so something that was just released uh, very recently was, and it's something I sent to you, it's the um, UAS and urban attacks red teaming exercise report. So 
Um, I encourage people to take a look. I think interestingly, like the, one of the things that surprised me and a lot of practitioners was that we found that comms towers were the most likely to be targeted. And that's the first thing Hamas targeted. And so it too soon fulfilled our surprised expectations, but um, it's a really information rich report. We learned a lot from that exercise. And so that's one of them. And then something I'm working on that's not ready yet, but that I, I think is really important is I have a, a co-authored project with Ryan Chandler at uh, Georgia Tech, and we're examining the second order effects of emerging technologies on the public because we have a lot of data and research on how this is changing modern warfare, but not how it's changing the public's posture toward modern warfare. So we're doing an experiment to, to look at how civilians increase participation in and exposure to emerging technologies in conflict and security issues is affecting them. And I think it's going to be really interesting. We're designing the, the experimental research design right now. So. Okay. All right. Well, we'll get the, uh, I do have that report and uh, we'll get that posted in the show notes uh, for anybody that wants to pull that down and be able to read that. So we'll Thanks. have that there for them to read. I'll also post the link to your uh, CSP paper uh, that we were discussing at the beginning, because uh, I think folks will find it really, Perfect. really useful and really interesting. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revolution Military Affairs, and thank you to our guest, Dr. Kerry Chavez from Texas Tech University. Please join us again next week. Uh, we'll be talking with Major General Retired Pat Donahoe, and let me tell you, it was a total blast recording that episode. So again, thank you, Kerry, and uh, thank you listeners for tuning in today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.